Uh, John and his wife, Betty, have served with City Team in Central California for over 30 years. City Team is a ministry that serves the poor and homeless in a number of American cities. John has spent most of his 30 years at uh, serving at Camp Maymac, Camp Maymac in the Santa Cruz Mountain. Presently, he serves as the director of the San Jose Team. John, of course, is the son of Ken and Mary Scott, and he's here to help celebrate his dad's 100th birthday which happens on July, or sorry, June the 11th. 11th right, right, right. So we pray that God would bless John as he speaks to us this morning. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. This church uh, holds many fond memories for me, as uh, uh, my parents and other sisters and family members lived here. And uh, I had the pleasure of serving with the church when I was attending the University of Alberta and uh, worked with uh, Neil and Mavis out on the farm for a couple of summers and uh, with some other folks in the community as well. My parents, Ken and Mary Scott, wanted to send their greetings. Uh, Unfortunately, they couldn't join us here this morning. They would have loved to do that. Their health is definitely a little frailer, and uh, it is an amazing joy to be able to come and celebrate my dad's 100th birthday uh, this next weekend. From my parents on down, there's over 60 of us now. In fact, uh, one of my nephews, he and his wife just adopted two children, and they will be introduced to the whole gang next, uh, next weekend when we gather. So I am very blessed to come from a family that uh, welcomed me into this world with great love and um, Probably one of the toughest things for me to leave when Betty and I went to California 30 years ago uh, was leaving family behind. And uh, our son Jack is now back living here, if you can believe it. So it's come full circle. He and Francis live in Edmonton and uh, actually met working at Hope Mission. (laughs) So it's fascinating how our ministry with City Team rubbed off on him and uh, he has found uh, his bride-to-be working in ministry as well. City Team uh, has been around for about 60 years, just over 60 years. I have a few brochures uh, here at the front if you want to grab one and look a little more at what City Team does. But when Betty and I went down there uh, in 1987, we went to serve with Camp Maymac, which uh, is operated by City Team in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, it was to work with a camp that served at-risk youth from the Bay Area. Majority of our youth that attended summer camp and were ministered through to through uh, community clubs year-round were uh, African American, Latino, Asian, my, uh, whites are the minority. In fact, I remember when I went down to interview for the job, I uh, rode on a bus. It was at the beginning of summer camp, and uh, we ran our own buses back then, and we rode the bus in to East Palo Alto. East Palo Alto sits right across the highway from Stanford University. So you have incredible wealth and power in that community, and literally across the highway was a very impoverished community that back in the early 90s was the murder capital of the United States with the violence that broke out in that community, and our campers came out of that community. 
I was riding back. We were host, uh, this was a camp for uh, six to eight-year-olds. So I was sitting beside two little African-American boys and trying to strike up a conversation, this white Canadian, um, trying to be real with them and understand where they were coming from. And so one of them asked me a question, and I thought he was commenting about how red my nose was. This was in June, and I was already burnt by the California sun. And uh, I said, so I said to him, yeah, it often gets that way in the summer. And I saw this quizzical look pass across his face, and uh, I thought, well, I don't think I caught that right. And so I said, so what, what did you ask me? And he said, I was asking why your nose is so pointed. <laughs> so you can imagine how my answer baffled him. So that began my cross-cultural experience of how I was the odd one with the uh, white pointed nose that had turned red. Um, And it began 30 years of working with people who were not like the people I had primarily grown up with, not only ethnically, but then in terms of lifestyle. Uh, Most people that I had never, ever associated with in my life before with alcoholics, with drug addicts, with at-risk youth, with women who were addicted and pregnant and had no place to go, uh, with gay people, with straight people, with uh, a whole wide range of society that we would view on the edges of our society. The people who are not like us, ethnically different, religiously different, Uh, So it was quite a process for me to adjust. And as I was reflecting, and I'll uh, highlight some of these people that I've loved dearly and who I work with and share some of their stories a little later in my talk about God's amazing redemptive love. As was mentioned, City Team is in five cities. We provide services very similar to Hope Mission in Edmonton. When you think of Hope Uh, That's really city team. We even have a camp, just like Hope, about 60 miles out of town, Camp Maymac. Um, We have women's programs, Heritage Home and House of Grace, which serve uh, women struggling in addiction. Heritage Home specifically for women who are pregnant and struggling with those addictions. We have a men's program, uh, similar to the women's, and an emergency shelter uh, for men. Uh, We have a community services facility that serves families and individuals in need with clothing, household goods, uh, food. We serve uh, over 1,200 families a month through that service. We also, with that service, have a Discovering God program, if you would, probably the simplest thing to call it, a way of reaching out into the community and inviting people to meet together in their homes around God's Word to discover who Jesus is, to discover who God is. Um, Don't invite them to come to a church per se, but go to them, as it were, take church to them and bring God's word to them. Where we've seen that especially effective is among Latinos who are often very family-based already and who are searching, a lot of them, either first-generation, documented and undocumented immigrants into the Bay Area. In fact, I just wanted to share a a brief story about 
uh, one of these Discovering God groups. A woman who had been impacted by one of these groups, and as she was reading scripture and praying and learning about God with a group of women, she said, every week I go to the graveyard to visit my son's grave who was killed in a vehicle accident as a teenager. And uh, she said, do you think maybe God wants me to reach out to some of the other women that I see there who are there to visit the graves of family members? And so the others were encouraging her to do that. So she began conversing with some of the other women that were in the graveyard. I'm sorry I don't have it with me here this morning, but I have a photo of uh, these women, and this woman was leading a Bible study around a gravestone in the graveyard. And for six, eight months, this group of women, it ended up being about 12 of them uh, with a couple of children, would meet together in the graveyard to discover God together and learn about who Jesus is. That is often where it begins. It's just in where people are in need and are searching and are hurting and providing the love of Jesus uh, to them. It's been my privilege to work with a tremendous team in San Jose. Uh, we just hired a new president of the organization. He came in last, a year ago. Uh, only the third president in our 60-year history. So we're in a time of evaluation as a ministry. We will continue our core ministries as I've described to you. But one of the things that I invite you to pray for as you think of our ministry is we want to open a women's and children's shelter. That's one of a, a huge need actually in the Bay Area. Quite a few services for men but very little for women. And uh, so we're in the process of talking with the city of San Jose and looking at <clears throat> property opportunities there in... Uh, Jack, would you mind bringing my glass of water? I'm sorry about that. My throat's going froggy here on me. Um, San Jose, as you know, is in the heart of Silicon Valley. And it has gone crazy in terms of the cost of living. It's uh, now for a two-bedroom apartment. It's $3,200 a month just to rent a two-bedroom apartment. The gap between the rich and the poor is just growing exponentially. And some people, many people, are actually commuting from the Central Valley into the Bay Area, the people who are in the service industries. They're commuting two hours each way, four hours on the road, just to hold down uh, not a very high-paying job. Most people are not making much in the service industry are not much, making much more than $15 an hour. So this dichotomy between the rich and the poor is growing and growing, and poor people are struggling more and more in our community. And so uh, especially with uh, women who uh, either through the, the po- increasing poverty that is occurring or through domestic violence that they're experiencing, um, Unfortunately, of course, in the midst of great wealth can also be great uh, hurt and harm being done to people. And so I'd invite you to pray for us as we want to launch a women and children's shelter as our next uh, venture for us as a ministry 
in the Bay Area. <clears throat> Thank you for your prayers and support. Uh, for us as an organization, we're totally dependent on people's giving to City Team. We don't receive any government funding. And so for those of you that have been so faithfully supporting us with your financial support, but also with your prayer, we just really appreciate that. Thanks so much. <clears throat> so I'd like to share a few thoughts from Galatians 5. I was laughing when I was exchanging emails with Pastor Dan and said, I think I'll, this is the passage that I think I'd choose for this morning. And he said, ha ha, that's funny. I said, that's what I preached on last Sunday. <laughs> I said, well, I guess they'll get part two of that, the California twist, as I'm pitch-hitting here this morning in the absence of the pastors. The title of my talk, as you may have seen in the, in the bulletin, is Don't Fence Me In. And I'd like to do something a little different, probably a song that you've never heard in a Sunday morning service but I'd like to play it now. Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees Send me off forever but I ask you please don't fence me in, just turn me loose Let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western sky On my cayuse, let me wander over yonder Till I see the mountains rise I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences Gaze at the moon till I lose my senses can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences Don't fence me in my old saddle underneath the western skies on my cayuse let me wander over yonder till I see the mountains rise I want to ride to the ridge where the west commences gaze at the moon till I lose my senses can't look at hobbles and I can't stand fences don't <laughs> that song is one of my dad's favorite songs. I wish he was here to listen to it with us. Um, it takes me back, it takes my dad back to his childhood, of course. Uh, 
but even more so uh, to his grandparents. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, his grandparents, um, rode out onto the Alberta-Saskatchewan prairies in the 1880s, and there were no fence lines. It was the wide-open prairies. In fact, my great-grandmother was the first non-Indigenous woman to live in that part of uh, the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. When they first settled on the prairies, there were no fence lines. Three things were used to manage their livestock. A water source, a salt block, and a brand. The unique owner's brand that was placed in the hide of the cattle. People and animals could roam for hundreds of miles with nothing blocking their way or directing their path except the landscape of the earth. Roads and fence lines now divide up our prairies, but the metaphor of a fence is common in our sayings. Which side of the fence are you on? Are you on the right side of the fence or the wrong side of the fence? Are you riding the fence? Fence lines define territory. They separate what is mine from yours. My kingdom from your kingdom. My land from your land. In the spiritual realm, we often use the fence metaphor to describe who's on the inside and who's on the outside. Who is one of us and who is not? At first, it seems quite clear about who's in and who's out. Who are the white hats and who are the black hats? Who are the saved and who are the damned? Who is going to heaven and who's going to hell? I had it pretty clear in my, my mind until if, several years ago. I began to look at all the religious fence lines that have been built up over the millennium, and it reminded me of how cracks spread across ice on a lake or across a piece of glass. Up until about 1000 AD, there was basically one Christian church. But at that time, the Eastern Orthodox separated from the Roman Catholic. Then move forward to the 1500s, and we had another major reformation, which we are a part of, when Protestantism began and separated. And then, just like those glass fractures or that ice fracture, very quickly we then have fractured in, in the, on the Protestant side into hundreds. I don't know if anybody has a count of how many denominations there are. We are expert at building fence lines, of dividing lines, of who's a good guy and who's maybe questionable. Who's the good like me, or who's the bad? As I reflected on that, I was thinking, perhaps we need a new model. Perhaps we need to go back to the words of this song, of Don't Fence Me In. Perhaps that song is actually a cry of the Holy Spirit to say, let's approach things differently. Rather than defining things by fence lines, let's go back to the way they used to do it. Let's make Jesus our water source. As long as you had that water source, you always knew where the cattle would end up at some point because they would always come to the water and to the salt. And Jesus invites us to be an expression of his living water, to be his salt in the world. And in this passage, as we read about the fruits of the Spirit, that's really the brand, isn't it? That's how the world should know us is by those fruits of the Spirit. That's what should mark us 
as being Jesus' followers. Galatians is one of probably the, one of the angriest books in the Bible. Um, when you read through the book, you realize Paul is fed up with a group within the Galatian church that was bent on rebuilding fence lines that Jesus had torn down. They wanted to make followers of Jesus return to the requirements of the law that Jesus no longer required. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That's quite a public demonstration of tearing up a contract, wouldn't you say? Of how their whole religious system now was made void in many ways, in in the ways that they thought God wanted uh, to be worshipped and to be approached. Uh, With uh, circumcision... We don't often talk about circumcision, but that was a big deal that was part of the brand of identifying that you were on the good team, that you were Jewish, and that you were a follower of God. In fact, the verse just prior to the passage that was read this morning, Paul says some pretty strong words. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go all the way and emasculate themselves. Well, that's some pretty strong language. Paul was upset. Paul was trying to help the Galatians understand that the new framework that Jesus introduced was different, that it's, a human, that it's human nature that when the rules and expectations come off, that we then feel like, hey, no rules apply. Anything goes. Everything goes. Paul is trying to get out ahead of that swinging of the pendulum by listing the kinds of common sense, hey guys, just because you're free in Christ, don't start doing this stuff. Don't live a selfish, hedonistic, me-first kind of lifestyle. Like Jesus, Paul reminds the Galatians that loving your neighbor, remember that uh, passage again, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeated that a number of times. Loving your neighbor is the focus. And the dance of love with your neighbor is to be directed by listening to and for the prompting of the Holy Spirit as we live as an expression of love to those around us. I don't know about you, but when I read the Galatians passage, I immediately zeroed in on the negative things Paul lists and then worry about his statement in conclusion that says, I warn you, as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That gets my attention. It kind of reminds me of when you go to a medical checkup and you fill out the form and you have to check off all the boxes of what applies to you and what doesn't. And you begin to wonder, oh, how sick am I? What does this mean? Um, But when you look back at what Paul, I believe, is doing here, is that he's not treating these lists of sins, these lists of unhealthy behavior as a diagnostic test. He's simply saying, guys, that's not where life is found, is in that activity. Where life is found is by listening to the Spirit, listening to what the Spirit of God is calling us to say and to live. God invites us to experience eternal life, 
and the kingdom of heaven now. Not just when we die, but now. One of our songs this morning reminded us of that. Paul's list, in many ways, was kind of beating his opposition to the punch and reminding them that uh, he was refusing to submit to the old rules, to the old ways of doing things, and instead invites them into a much more deeper and complex and highly relational experience with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Having spent half of my childhood living in a Christian community on a Bible school campus, Prairie Bible Institute, that's where I spent 10 years of my life, and now working for over 30 years for a Christian ministry, I've observed probably thousands of people in their pursuit of God and how they're going about it. As I mentioned before, city team ministers to alcoholics, drug addicts, at-risk youth, pregnant women in crisis, poor immigrants, foster children, murderers, sex offenders, felons, victims of mass disaster, people on the edge. That's how I've spent the last 30, 30 years of my life. I'd like to just share a couple of those stories. And um, the first one I'd like to start with is Charles. And we'll put Charles' uh, picture up. Charles directs our men's program. He joined staff with our San Jose division 11 years ago. Charles grew up on the streets of Philadelphia. He was in the foster system. He never remembers in his entire childhood ever receiving a gift of any kind. He often, in the homes that he was in, was not even allowed to eat at the same table as the families who he was staying with. He started uh, experimenting with drugs when he was a senior in high school and quickly got into that lifestyle. For uh, He joined the Navy, managed to hold on and still maintain his, his drug use for a few years, and then he left the Navy and moved back to Philadelphia and was in and out of jobs. But most of the time, he was living in abandoned homes. He uh, jokingly calls, him, calls them his abandominiums. And... Uh, One day he was headed to buy some drugs and he walked by these guys and uh, they didn't like what they saw evidently and as he walked past them, one of them pulled out a gun and shot Charles in the back of the head. Um, When he woke up, he was in the hospital but he was so uh, craving his next fix that he took the intravenous tubes out of his arms and walked out of that hospital. And then he went home, and because he was in such despair, um, he tried to hang himself, and the rope broke. He uh, never has had that bullet taken out of the back of his head. It's still in his head. He, um, He used to come to City Team just outside of Philadelphia for a meal occasionally, And when his failed attempt at suicide occurred, he was at rock bottom and he decided, he said, you know, I'm going to, they're the only people that I think can do something for me. So he showed up. The staff were in a staff meeting 
And there was a woman at the desk, and she was terrified by what she saw because he was so emaciated and half out of his mind. Uh, but he said, if he told her, please let me sit here because if I leave, uh, I'm going to die. So she allowed him to stay, and uh, 15 minutes later or so, the door opened, and one of the staff came out. And Charles said, John, I steeled myself because I was expecting him to kick me out because I wasn't there at the right time. And instead, this man walked up to him, and as Charles stood up, the man embraced him and hugged him and said, Charles, we've been waiting for you. And that's what started the amazing transformation in Charles' life. For 20 years, he was living in abandoniums, drug-addicted, if you'd seen him, you would have written him off. You would say, there's no hope for this man. And now he manages our men's facility. And we have graduations three times a year for both our women's and men's programs. And I wish you could come and sit in on one of those graduations because man after man will stand up and say, what, uh, why did you stay? Why did you stick it out? It's a 9- to 12-month program. And they'll say, because of Charles because I knew if he could do it, I could do it. So that's Charles, a man that I love and is a tremendous man on our team. He married Sandra after uh, he got his life turned around and uh, they came to join us as staff. She's actually, if you call City Team, she's one of our receptionists and her voice you would hear answering your call. Next slide. Melanie and Adam. I'll just uh, read Melanie's uh, a couple of points from her testimony. She shared this testimony back in 2012 when she was just finishing up our program. She said, my parents got divorced when I was two and a half. Um, she said, but I, uh, my dad separated because of his addiction. Uh, by the age of eight, I was being molested. Uh, until I was 12. I went to a counselor, but I didn't tell them what was going on. I started uh, drinking and smoking pot when I was in high school. Uh, my dad and his girlfriend got back together, and I ended up moving in with him. But my dad's drinking was still so bad uh, that he'd go to the bar every night, and I was sneaking out every night and would hang out with the older boys and smoke weed. I was very lonely and craving affection and acceptance from men. By the time I was a freshman in high school, I was now experimenting with other drugs. <clears throat> By the time she was a senior, um, she was using uh, cocaine and meth. And then she graduated into OxyContin. Um, then, from the age of 18 to 20, I got arrested six times and was convicted of four felonies. It was when she was in jail that she heard about City Team, and she came. She's now a staff member. She works with us. Her husband, beside her, his name is Adam. Adam watched his girlfriend overdose and die in front of him. And uh, he had tried a couple of programs. He, his uh, uncle who lived in San Jose, flew him to San Jose to enter our program. Adam shot up with meth 
in the restroom of the airplane before it landed to get his last fix before he knew he'd enter the program. So he was coming off of his, uh, he's detoxing from his meth. He, would, he spent two weeks just pacing in our courtyard outside with a towel over his head. And guys just were, our fellow uh, clients were just encouraging him, hang in there, Adam, hang in there, it'll get better. So he did. Um, he now graduated from a Christian university, has his uh, business degree, and he and Melanie just got married uh, a year and a half ago. I was at their wedding. And um, the night before their wedding, her dad, which I mentioned earlier in the talk, graduated from our men's program, and he was at the wedding to dance with his daughter. <laughs> so another couple that if you had seen them when they first entered our program, you would have written them off. These are people who are beyond hope, um, and yet um, they met Jesus and uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Next slide. Melody James and their little boy Nathan. Melody has a similar story. She, uh, in her her 20s, was... uh, cooking and selling meth and was married to a man 20 years older than her. She entered through our program. James also came to our shelter and uh, met God there. She now runs House of Grace and he now oversees our shelter. And they got married at Camp Maymac. Uh, They would be about Six years ago, they got married. And are such wonderful testimonies to God's grace. Melody, uh, her, her husband, which she was, had, when she went through the program, she lost contact with him. She found out that he had murdered someone and was um, in prison in Winnipeg, of all places. And so she, when she started to date James, our staff, were saying to her, well, you need to take care of the fact that you're still married. So she wrote to her husband in prison in Winnipeg, and he immediately gave his consent to, for divorce and uh, released her to be married. Uh, so that's James and Melody and little Nathan. One more. Scott. I was at camp a few years ago, and Scott was there volunteering. He was in our program, and he was there on the weekend to serve in the kitchen with our guest groups. As I chatted with Scott, here's the strange thing. His dad uh, started at Prairie my last year, the year I graduated at Prairie. Scott got into addiction as a high school student. He ended up under a, a, a bridge in Santa Cruz, he said, I was so fed up with my life that I, didn't, I started sleeping out from underneath the overpass in hopes that a car would go off the overpass and fall on me and kill me. Um, one day, a woman who would see him periodically, she walked up to him, and she had this large jar of coins. And she said, I'm giving you this. This is all I have, but you need help. Go find help. So he gets on a bus. And he takes a bus to Felton. He gets off the bus. His dad lives over in the Central Valley. 
When he gets off the bus, his dad is standing there. He has no idea. He's come to search for his son. And they meet each other at that bus stop because he was given that jar of coins to get on a bus. He entered our program. And uh, again, another amazing transformation. I had the joy of hiring him to work on staff with us uh, a year and a half ago. And that is his bride of uh, a year and a half. Uh, I guess I have one last picture. This was a baptism and child dedication that we had a, a year ago. The lady on the right in the red top is Hana Lee. She oversees our women's programs. Hana Lee comes from Nagaland. Ever heard of Nagaland? <laughs> That's a province in northern India. And she came for some training years ago, and she stayed on and has been with us on staff. And it's just been amazing how God has used her. She would never have guessed, having been born and raised in Nagaland, that she would end up ministering to drug-addicted women in the Bay Area. And yet, I can point to, well, in fact, Melody, who I showed you earlier. Melody was one of the women that uh, Hanali specifically focused in on and discipled. So that's some of the joy of seeing life transformation that occurs not by approaching people with the rule book, but approaching them with love, to love. And back to our song that I shared at the beginning, perhaps that's what God is inviting us to do. We so easily want to define people by which fence or which wall they're behind. Uh, But I think Jesus is inviting us to take down those fences, to reach people as simply his children. We're all made in the image of God. Genesis makes that very clear to us. And I was thinking of, uh, reflecting back to one last story, I was Hurricane Katrina in 2005. I spent, uh, I don't know, probably about a month and a half at different times in our hurricane response with Hurricane Katrina. And I remember sitting on this, we, had it, we were stationed on a ball field, and we were having a team meeting one morning, and someone said, why does God seem to be so much closer here than back home? And so we kind of talked about that for a bit, and, and they said, you know, I think it's because everything's been stripped away here. We were sitting on a ball field that had been 20 feet underwater when the tidal wave came in with Katrina. Um, people were reduced to just bare existence. Um, and uh, a lot of walls came down, especially in a community that had a lot of racial divide. One of the churches that we also helped rebuild there was called the Powerhouse of Deliverance. <laughs> it's an African-American church. Some of the greatest worship services I've ever been in were in that church that had been gutted, and uh, we helped uh, them rebuild it. But I think um, that is what the Holy Spirit is inviting us to do, is to follow Jesus out into the landscape, wherever that takes us. And often, I'll tell you, it's been my experience as someone who grew up in a pretty conservative, pretty protected environment. I'll tell you, some of the greatest experiences of God for me 
have been with the people like the ones I just showed you. Not with them at their best that you see them now in terms of the amazing restoration that God has brought about in their lives. But when they were at their worst, um, that is where often you see God like you'll never see him uh, in any other place. So I'd like to just close in prayer. But perhaps my thoughts have stirred something in you. Perhaps God has brought to mind someone that you can think of that you see as on the other side of the fence, someone who's different from you, um, ethnically, religiously, lifestyle-wise. You may not think of someone right now, but I'll guarantee you, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, he'll nudge you about someone. And often, where it begins is just simple hospitality a hot meal, a kind act towards them, an act of hospitality, an act of opening up ourselves um, and inviting them into a conversation. Paul says, let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's all about conversation, not about Uh, assertion and preaching at people, but a conversation. You notice that conversation is about the questions that they have, not about all the points that I want to make with them. So I invite us, as we close in prayer, to say, God, who is it that you want me to reach across the fence line and uh, begin a relationship with? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your amazing, deep, and abiding love. As Paul has reminded us in Ephesians, that love has absolutely no limits. In Psalms, we read that, as David reminds us repeatedly, that your love is everlasting. So it's not limited by space or time. And Father, it's in the confidence and the assurance of the Father's love that we can then risk it that we can follow Jesus out into the world and then tune in to the Holy Spirit to reach and connect with people who are not like us. Father, that is truly how the kingdom of heaven comes to earth, is one life at a time. As we then listen to you and seek to be that expression of your love to those around us. So open our eyes as Jesus reminded his disciples with the woman at the well. Lift up your eyes and see that the harvest is white. It's ready for harvest. But Lord, often what stops us is our own blindness, our own insecurities, our own fears. We like to just work with people who look like us and talk like us and believe like us. But Lord, help us to love our neighbor as you have first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.